We'll again do a wide swathe of time, beginning with Marlowe's translation of Ovid's Elegy, which we'll read just the one, number 17. To serve a wench, if any think it shame, he being judge, I am cons- a blame. Let me be slandered while my fire she hides. That Papos and the flood-beat Cythera guides. Would I had been my mistress' gentle prey, since some fair one I should of force obey. Beauty gives heart, Carina's looks excel. Amy, why is it known to her so well? But by her glass disdainful pride she learns, nor she herself but first trimmed up discerns. Not though thy face in all things make thee reign, O face most cunning eye, mine eyes to detain. Thou oughtest therefore to scorn me for thy mate. Small things with greater may be copulate. Love's snared calypso is supposed to pray, a mortal nymph's refusing lord to stay. Who doubts with Peleus Thetis did consort, Egeria with just Numa had good sport. Venus with Vulcan, though Smith's tools laid by, with his stump foot he halts ill-favored lie. This kind of verse is not alike yet fit with shorter numbers, the heroic sit. And thou, my light, accept me howsoever, lay in the mid-bed, there be my lawgiver. My stay no crime, my flight no joy shall breed, nor of our love to be ashamed we need. For great revenues I good verses have, and many by me to get glory crave. I know a wench reports herself Corinne. What would not she give that fair name to ween? But sundry floods in one bank never go, Eurotoss cold and poplar bearing poe. Nor in my books shall one but thou be writ. Thou doest alone give matter to my wit. <clears throat> I read the Earl of Ross Commons essay on translated verse in a previous episode. But what I did not read was the incredibly good <clears throat> encomiums to Ross Common that precede his essay. The first by John Dryden to the Earl of Ross Common on his excellent essay on translated verse. Whether the fruitful Nile Retiring shore, the seeds of arts and infant science bore. To sure the noble plant translated first, advanced its head in Grecian gardens nursed. The Grecians added verse, their tuneful tongue, made nature first and nature's God their song. Nor stop translation here. For conquering Rome with Grecian spoils brought Grecian numbers home. Enriched by those Athenian muses more, 
than all the vanquished world could yield before, till barbarous nations in more barbarous times debase the majesty of verse to rhymes. Those rooted first a kind of hobbling prose that limped along and tinkled on the close, but Italy reviving from the trance of vandal, goth, and monkish ignorance, with pauses cadence and well-voweled words, and all the graces a good ear affords, made rhyme an art, and Dante's polished page restored a silver, not a golden age. Then Petrarch followed, and in him we see what rhyme improved in all its height can be, at best a pleasing sound and fair barbarity. The French pursued their steps, and Britain last in manly sweetness all the rest surpassed. The wit of Greece, the gravity of Rome, appear exalted in the British loom. The Muses' empire is restored again in Charles' his reign and by Roscommon's pen. Yet modestly he does his work survey and calls a finished poem an essay. For all the needful rules are scattered here, truth smoothly told and pleasantly severe, so well as art disguised for nature to appear. Nor need those rules to give translation light. His own example is a flame so bright that he who but arrives to copy well, unguided will advance, unknowing will excel. Scarce his own Horace could such rules ordain, or his own Virgil sing a nobler strain. How much in him may rising Ireland boast, how much in gaming, gaining him has Britain lost. Their island in revenge has ours reclaimed. The more instructed we, the more we still are shamed. Tis well for us his generous blood did flow, derived from British channels long ago, that here his conquering ancestors was nursed, and Ireland but translated England first. By this reprisal we regain our right, else must the two contending nations fight. A nobler quarrel for his native earth than what divided Greece for Homer's birth. To what perfection will our tongue arrive? How will invention and translation thrive? When authors nobly born will bear their part and not disdain the inglorious praise of art. Great generals thus descending from command with their own toil provoke the soldier's hand. How will sweet Ovid's ghost be pleased to hear his fame augmented by a British peer? How he embellishes his Helen's loves, outdoes his softness and his sense improves. When these translate and teach translators too, nor firstling kid, nor any vulgar vow, should it at Apollo's grace, grateful altar stand. Ross Common writes to that auspicious hand, 
Muse feed the bull that spurns the yellow sand. Roscommon, whom both court and camps commend, true to his prince and faithful to his friend. Roscommon first in fields of honor known, first in the peaceful triumphs of the gown. He both Minerva's justly makes his own. Now let the few beloved by Jove and they whom infused Titan formed of better clay on equal terms with ancient wit engage, nor mighty Homer fear, nor sacred Virgil's page, our English palace opens wide in state, and without stooping they may pass the gate. And here's a uh, there's two more of these. They're both great. To the Earl of Roscommon on his excellent poem. As when by laboring stars new kingdoms rise, the mighty mass in rude confusion lies, a court unformed, disorder at the bar, and even in peace the rugged men a war. Till some wise statesman into method draws the parts and animates the frame with laws. Such was the case when Chaucer's early toil founded the Muses' empire in our soil. Spencer improved it with his painful hand, but lost a noble muse in fairyland. Shakespeare said all that nature could impart, and Johnson added industry and art. Cowley and Denham gained immortal praise. And some who merit as they wear the bays searched all the treasuries of Greece and Rome and brought the precious spoils and triumph home. But still our language had some ancient rust. Our flights were often high, but seldom just. There wanted one who license could restrain, make civil laws or barbarous usage reign when worthy in Apollo's chair to sit and to hold the scales and give the stamp of wit, in whom ripe judgment and young fancy meet, and force poetic rage to be discreet, who grows not nauseous while he strives to please, but marks the shelves and the poetic seas, who knows and teaches what our clime can bear, and makes the barren ground obey the laborer's care, Few could conceive, none the great work could do. Tis a fresh province and reserved for you. Those talents all are yours, of which but one were a fair fortune for Muse's son. Wit, reading, judgment, conversation, art, a head well balanced and a generous heart. Well, insect rhymes cloud the polluted sky created to molest the world and die. Your file does polish what your fancy cast. Works are long forming, which must always last. Rough iron sense and stubborn to the mold, touched by your shimic hand, is turned to gold. A secret grace fashions the flowing lines, and inspiration through the labor shines, Writers, in spite of all their paint and art, betray the darling passion of their heart. No fame you wound, 
Give no chaste ears offense, still true to friendship, modesty, and sense. So saints from heaven for our example sent, live to their rules, having nothing to repent. Horus, if living by exchange of fate, would give no laws, but only yours translate. <laughs> Hoist sail, bold writers, search, discover far. You have a compass for a polar star. Tune Orpheus' harp, and with enchanting rhymes, soften the savage humor of the times. Tell all those untouched wonders which appeared when fate itself for our great monarch feared, securely through the dangerous forest led by guards of angels when his own were fled. Heaven kindly exercised his youth with cares to crown with unmixed joys his riper years, make warlike James's peaceful virtues known, the second hope and genius of the throne. Heaven in compassion brought him on our stage to tame the fury of a monstrous age. But what blessed voice shall your Maria sing or a fit offering to her altars bring? In joys and grief and triumphs and retreat, great always without aiming to be great. True Roman majesty adorns her face and every gesture's formed by every grace. Her beauties are too heavenly and refined. For the gross senses of a vulgar mind, it is your part, you poets can divine, to prophecy how she, by heaven's design, shall give an heir to the great British line, who over all the western isles shall reign, both all the continent and rule the main. It is your place to wait upon her name, through the vast regions of eternal fame. True poets' souls to princes are allied, and the world's empire with its kings divide. Heaven trusts the present time to monarch's care. Eternity is a good writer's share. Knightly Chetwood. And the third one, which to me is as good as Dryden's first one, is to the Earl of Roscommon on his excellent essay on translated verse. Was satyr pleased, and nothing else was writ, but pure ill nature passed for noblest wit. Some privileged climes the poisonous weeds refuse, but when a generous understanding muse does richer fruits from happier soils translate, we are sent to Ireland by reverse of fate. Yet you, I know, with Plato, would disdain to write an equal Maonian strain. If twould debauch your humor so far forth to think so mean a thing enhanced your worth. For were that praise and only that your due, which Virgil too might claim no less than you, Though that had merited my bare esteem, I'd leave to other pens the single theme. But when I saw the candor of your mind, a muse inured to camps in courts refined, a soul even capable of being a friend, free from those follies which the great attend, 
I grant such excellence my soul did fire. Unable to command, I will admire. Happy the man when no concern is nigh, but nature's wanton and his blood runs high, who free from cares enjoys without control his muse, the darling mistress of his soul. No tedious court his appetite destroys, nor thoughts of gain pollute the rapturous joys. The dear Minerva's formed without a pain, and nothing less could spring from such a brain. And yet as godlike pity he imparts to those that drudge a duty against their hearts, and to illiberal uses rest the liberal arts. When I observe the wonders you explain, too much the ancients you commend in vain. In vain you would endeavor to persuade that all our rights were in those archives laid. That poetry must ever stand unmoved, the only art experience haint and proved. But grant all this were to religion grown, sure they concern no countries but their own. For let the Aeneid pass through other hands, and Virgil's self, a third-rate poet, stands. Unfit to reach the heights that he has flown, we wisely to our level bring him down. Himself had writ less sweet and less sublime in any other tongue or other time. And now, my lord, on this account I grieve to think how different from yourself you'll leave, you'll live when this inimitable peace is shown in languages and empires yet unknown. They will be learning then to know and hear not only what you wrote, but what you wear. J. Amherst. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that. We are now moving to Shenstone, William, who we've read from before. He was born in November 1714 in an insulated district near Shropshire. An old dame taught him how to read. His house was mean and he did not improve it. His care was of his grounds. When he came home from his walks, he might find his floors flooded by a shower through the broken roof, could, but could spare no money for its reparation. In time, his expenses brought clamors about him that overpowered the lamb's bleat and the linnet's song, and his groves were haunted by beings very different from fawns and fairies. He spent his estate in adorning it, and his death was probably hastened by his anxieties. He was a lamp that spent its oil in blazing. Elegy 23, reflections suggested by his situation. Born near the scene from Kenelm's fate renowned, I take my plaintive reed and range the grove, and raise my lay and bid the rocks resound, the savage force of empire and of love. Fast by the center of yon various wild, where spreading oaks embowered a gothic fane, Kendrina 
Kendrida's arts, a brother's youth beguiled. Their nature urged her tenderest pleas in vain. Soft o'er his birth and o'er his infant hours, the ambitious maid could every care employ, then with assiduous fondness cropped the flowers to deck the cradle of the princely boy. But soon the bosom's pleasing calm is flown, love fires her breasts, the sultry passions rise, a favored lover seeks the mercy and throne, and views the kennelin with a rival's eyes. How kind were fortune, and how just were fate, would fate or fortune mercy's heir remove. How sweet to revel on the couch of state, to crown at once her lover and her love. See, garnished for the chase, the fraudful maid, to these lone hills direct his devious way. The youthful prone, the sister guide obeyed, ill-fated youth, himself the destined prey. But now not shaggy hill nor pathless plain forms the lone refuge of the sylvan game. Since Littleton has crowned the sweet domain with softer pleasures and with fairer fame, where the rough bowman urged his headlong steed, immortal bards of polished race retire, and where horse screamed the streepant horn, succeed the melting graces of no vulgar lyre. See Thompson loitering near some limpid well, for Britain's friend the verdant wreath prepare, or studious of revolving seasons tell how peerless Lucia made all seasons fair. See from civic garlands fly, and in these groves indulge his tone, tuneful vein, or from yon summit with a guardian's eye observe how freedom's hand retires the plain. Here Pope, ah, never must a towering mind to his love's haunts, or dearer friend, return. What art, what friendship, oh, what fame resigned in yonder glade I trace his mournful urn. Where is the breast can rage or hate retain, and these glad streams and smiling lawns behold? Where is the breast can hear the woodland strain and think fair freedom well exchanged for gold? Through these soft shades delighted let me stay, will o'er my head forgotten suns descend. Through these dear valleys bend my casual way till setting life a total shade extend. Here far from courts and void of pompous cares, I'll muse how much I owe mine humbler fate or shrink to find how much ambition dares to shine in anguish and to grieve in state. Canst thou, O sun, that spotless throne disclose where her bold arm has left no sanguine stain, where show me where the lineal scepter glows, pure as a simple crook that rules the plain. Tremendous pomp, where hate, distrust, and fear in kindred bosoms soul the social tie. There not the parent's smile is half sincere, nor void of art the consort's melting eye. There with the friendly wish the kindly flame, no faces brighten and no bosoms beat 
youth manhood age of vow one sordid aim, and even the beardless lip essays deceit. There coward rumors walk their murderous round, the glance that more than rural blame instills, whispers that tinged with friendship doubly wound, pity that injures and concern that kills. There anger wets, but love can ne'er engage, caressing brothers part, but to revile. There all men smile, and prudence warns the wise to dread the fatal stroke of all that smile. There all are rivals, sister, son, and sire, with horrid purpose hug destructive arms, their soft-eyed maids in murderous plots conspire and scorn the gentler mischief of their charms. Let servile minds one endless watch endure, day, night, nor hour their anxious guard resign, but lay me fade on flowery banks secure, though my whole soul be like my limbs supine. Yes, may my tongue disdain a vassal's care, my lyre resound of prostituted lays, more warm to merit, more elate to wear the cap of freedom than the crown of bays. Soothed by the murmurs of my pebbled flood, I wish it not o'er golden songs to flow. Cheered by the verdure of my spiral wood, I scorn the quarry where no shrub can grow. No midnight pangs the shepherd's peace pursue. His tongue, his hand, attempts no secret wound. He sings his Delia, and if she be true, his love at once and his ambitions crowned. William Falconer was a native of Scotland bred to the sea service, in which he spent the greatest part of his life in a very low situation, displaying poetic talents at an early age by the publication at Edinburgh of a poem in 1751 addressed to Frederick, Prince of Wales. He wrote a very long poem called The Shipwreck, but I will read The Fond Lover, a ballad. A nymph of every charm possessed that native virtue gives, within my bosom all confessed and bright idea lives. For her my trembling numbers play along the pathless deep, while sadly social with my lay the winds in concert weep. If beauty's sacred influence charms the rage of adverse fate, say why the pleasing soft alarms such cruel pangs create since all her thoughts by sense refined on artful truth express. Say wherefore sense and truth are joined to give my soul distress. If when her blooming lips I press, which vernal fragrance fills, through all my veins the sweet excess and trembling motion thrills. Say whence the secret anguish grows, congenial with my joy, and why the touch where pleasure glows should vital peace destroy. If when my fair and melting song awakes the vocal lay, not all your notes, you Phocian throng, should such pleasing sounds convey, 
This wrapped all over with fondest love, why heaves this broken sigh? For then my blood forgets to move, I gaze, adore, and die. Accept, my charming maid, the strain which you alone inspire. To thee the dying strings complain that quiver on my lyre. Oh, give this bleeding bosom ease, it knows no joy but thee. Teach me thy happy art to please, ordain to love like me. Thank you.